Bad times make hard men, hard men make good times, good times make soft men, soft men make bad times. We are in bad times. We need men, 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 men. Hello and welcome to Oh God, What Now? That was a special tribute to Lawrence Fox's Tweet of the Week in which Loza put out an impassioned call for hard men. Uh, that, <laughs> that was made by friend of the show, Joe Muggs. He said that he said that bad times require hard men and he needs men, uh, all caps. So uh, let him know if you can help him out. <laughs> I'm Dorian Linsky. Let's meet the panel. Joining me this week is Nina Schick, commentator and author of Deep Fakes in the Infocalypse. Hi, Nina. Hi. Hi, everyone. Good to be here. So in the land of tech weirdness, there's been controversy over a new documentary about the late chef Anthony Bourdain, which uses AI to clone his voice from beyond the grave. Um, how good is voice cloning technology now? If I were an AI right now, uh, could you tell? Is there an AI that will interrupt you with annoying quips? <laughs> <laughs> it is getting scarily good and um there are some companies out there that say that they can clone your voice or replicate your voice with ai using just five seconds of training data now given your prolific public presence that means there is a lot of training data out there to recreate the perfect dorian there's even a company out there that uses <laughs> synthetically recreated ai voices specifically for podcasters so if in post-edit you decide, oh, you know, I didn't say it very eloquently, you could just get your producer to type in what you want your voice to say instead, or that of your guest. Oh, my God. And it would be fluid. It wouldn't be like, thanks for joining no, me. No, you wouldn't be able to tell. Little do the listeners know that we've actually been doing this for four years now. <laughs> <laughs> None the, of us have been here. The Ian Dutt Fuckbot 3000. <laughs> <laughs> that does not sound good. <laughs> um. Well, let's meet the Fuckbot 3000. Ian Dunt is... That that isn't my new name. That's not how this works. (laughs) Ian Dunt is a columnist at The Eye. Hello, Ian. Hello. Um, Ian, the director, Ken Loach, has been expelled from the Labour Party this week, apparently because he refuses to disown prescribed organisations. Presumably this means Labour against the witch hunt, of which he is a prominent supporter. There's been uh, uproar on the left and a letter from the Socialist Campaign Group demanding his reinstatement. Um... Are they deliberately obscuring the reason for his expulsion, do you think? Yeah, or maybe they're just stupid. Or maybe they just don't care about Jewish people. So you can pick one of those three options, I think. The most of the stuff that went out about him just kept on saying, well, he's Britain's greatest filmmaker, which I don't think he is, but he is a very, very good filmmaker. I like him. I like his films a lot. Um, It's just a complete fucking irrelevance to what's being discussed. Well, if like, you know, take your pick, you know, Christopher Nolan or whatever, if he was also a supporter of Labour Against the Witch Hunt. He might uh, also be expelled. He might also be expelled. It wouldn't be just like, but Dunkirk was (laughs) the way that Dunkirk played with timelines. It's sort of, I also noticed that the SCG letter, it didn't say whether Labour Against the Witch Hunt, which had been prescribed by the NEC, should be unprescribed nor did it say that they should still prescribe that but make an exception for load. So it seemed like it was they, – they didn't quite have the, the guts to say what they were demanding. Mm. I mean, it was like you said when you talked about this stuff, right, that, that it's strange that they choose even sort of people that I th- didn't think were sort of crazed Corbyn guys that I thought had kept their sort of, you know, their heads – Seem, they don't seem to have any evaluation about the hills upon which they may wish to die. You know what I mean? It just seems like the battles that they pick, you just think, why? Why Why would you pick this one? Like Labour Against the Witch Hunt, why would you be going anywhere near those trenches? You know, if you really believe in the socialist project, if you're really trying to maintain some kind of viable position within the Labour Party and national discussions, why would you pick that? Naomi Smith is Chief Executive at Besser Britain. Hi, Naomi. Hi. Um, the Independent this morning reported that G7 countries have stockpiled nearly a billion doses of COVID vaccine. What happened to the idea that no one is safe until everyone is safe? I mean, it's appalling, Dorian. I mean, this net figure is after uh, factoring in boosters. So this isn't just, oh, once everyone, every adult is doubly jabbed, then we can, you know, this is what we've got left. No, th- this is a billion doses after boosters have been distributed and the 750 million doses that um, have been earmarked to be allocated to COVAX. And a billion doses, if we put that in context, would be enough to fully immunise uh, about 30 of the least vaccinated countries in the world, many of which are in Africa. And some of those like Namibia, Sierra Leone, Gabon, but also places like Macedonia aren't 
according to current vaccination rates, uh, predicted to have immunised even as many as 20% of their population by 2022. And of course, data suggests Afghanistan has amongst the lowest vaccination rates in the world, at about 0.6 of the population being fully vaccinated. And of course, that is plateauing for very obvious reasons. WHO, Oxfam, uh, the Gavi Vaccine Alliance have all called on the rich nations to delay boosters and redistribute as much as they can to the world population because as you say none of us are safe until everyone is safe and about their fears that a new strain can emerge uh, and further waves of COVID are going to come back to get us and it just sort of feels like the West is no longer leading globally, uh, not on COVID, not on refugees, not on aid. It's just a, 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 another depressing headline from the West. This week on the show, after 20 years of Western presence in the country, the Taliban march back into Kabul with barely a bullet fired. How will the West react and what will happen to the thousands of refugees? And a gunman who murdered five people in Plymouth last week was a member of extreme misogynist groups online. Is so-called incel radicalisation on the rise and should we call it terrorism? Plus, in our extra bit for Patreon backers, we look at the concept of problematic faves, from Wagner to the baby. What do we do with the art of people who say or do terrible things? If you're enjoying the show and you have a spare moment, why not head over to Apple Podcasts and give us a positive review and a five-star rating? It's the best way to get Oh God, What Now up the podcast charts and to get us more listeners. We'd be very grateful. First this week, after a largely unopposed march through Afghanistan, the Taliban officially took control of the country over the weekend. The advance prompted alarming scenes of Afghan civilians clinging to US military planes as diplomats were evacuated. In the UK, Boris Johnson and Foreign Secretary Dominic Raab rushed back from their ill-timed holidays to say that the crisis was somehow both expected and unforeseeable. What should we do now to help those trying to flee the country and what does the return of the Taliban say about the new New World Order? Ian, you followed the debate in Parliament this morning, i.e. Wednesday. How did MPs perform? Yeah, really well. It's been a strange day. Um, I mean, so, look, I, I think when, when the debate got announced, I sort of, I didn't uh, really think, I, just couldn't, I was just like, what's the fucking point? Like, it's just like, we know what needs to be done now. It's evacuations now. We know the airport is currently secure. It may not be secure by the time people are listening to this. We know that the Taliban have anti-aircraft artillery. We know that they have mortars. We know that any time they fucking like... They can close that airport down and it will no longer function. Okay, so it becomes you can talk about anything else later. But the thing to do while the airport functions is you get people the fuck out. So it just seemed like, why would we be having this talking shop after the debate? um, I felt a bit I probably think I think I probably got that wrong because it was a remarkable spectacle, really. I've hardly ever seen the house more united including on the fact that the government had catastrophically fucked up. In fact, if anything, I think Tory MPs might have been more critical than Labour MPs. I think the contributions from MPs, some of them on the verge of tears, some of them sort of visibly shaking with with rage and anger, were of a very high quality. I mean, usually I've got to be, you know, usually in, in Parliament, contributions are not of a very high quality. Today, they I think they really, really were. And there was a moral drive behind many of them comparatively few tory mps made an ass of themselves only two which is a very very small number for five hours of debate in the commons so it was good and it may have created a sense of more forceful pressure on boris johnson and Priti patel to sort out their evacuation program now i don't think that's going to happen but if if any effect was to come from what happened today i think it is a, a positive one in terms of applying pressure to the government Well, like you say, Tories seemed as angry with Johnson as Keir Starmer did. Which sort of part of the Tory tradition has been activated here? Uh, Yeah, I mean, that's the... Well, I mean, you count them. You know, our geopolitical strategic posture, our sense of national pride, our manner in how you conduct yourselves, the military tradition. I mean, you know, this is cutting deep into a Tory assessment of who they are. But there is a sense of... You know, okay, so, and, and I welcome it, and I welcome it from Theresa May and anyone else that wants to say it, and I welcome it from, from everyone else on those benches, and I'm glad that they're saying it, but, you know, I would be in a much worse state now if they weren't. But we do need to be clear about something, which is that they are waking up in disbelief to the fact that America is essentially now following an America first policy, even under Biden as well as Trump, okay? Then they turn and they go, well, what the fuck do we do now? And they start talking about, oh, well, we better talk with our European NATO allies. And just like, no, do you not understand that you have spent the last six years burning your bridges with Europe. Now, it's not as if Europe has a powerful military force, but it is like those bilateral and those multilateral relationships matter. 
They are the foundation stone upon which the West operates. Now, you've burned that down. America has turned its back. And so what you were constantly seeing from many Tory MPs, even the most principled one, was this sort of white-faced, dry-throated, gargling horror at the recognition that we are now currently very, very alone. Naomi, Priti Patel announced that the UK would resettle 5,000 Afghan refugees this year, 20,000 in total. Labour MP Chris Bryant asked, what are the 15,000 meant to do, hang around and wait to be executed? <laughs> Like, as, as Ian says, sort of like every minute counts in yeah. getting people uh, on those planes. What is the point of a multi-stage plan? Indeed. And he, Chris Bryant's completely right. And, uh, and let's just look at the figures as well. You know, this is, this is a small number. 5,000 over a year, 20,000 in total. Canada have come out and said 20,000. David Davis, if we want to talk about thorns in the side of the government coming from uh, conservative ranks, uh, is saying it should be north of 50,000, I think is the figure that he talked about. And of course, applying for a visa to come to the UK can be a long, difficult and expensive process for all migrants, as Minnie has told us many, many times on this show, but particularly for Afghan nationals, because COVID and the closure of visa processing centres in the region because of the deteriorating situation there uh, caused difficulties even before the Taliban took control. And during the debate today, Priti Patel seemed to confirm that there would be absolutely no exception made for those fleeing the Taliban who used routes to come to the UK, like crossing the English Channel in a dinghy, saying that people uh, will only be allowed to resettle in Britain uh, having come through one of two schemes. One is this new scheme that launched overnight, which the government says is going to allow 20,000 Afghan refugees to come over the next five bloody years. I mean, how many you know, it just it just beggars belief. And by the way, we've sent back tens of thousands of Afghans in the last uh, decade anyway. Uh, and then there's the Afghan Relocations and Assistance Policy, ARAP, and that launched in April uh, and offers relocation for those who helped British operations in Afghanistan. But it, but, but, but it doesn't even really do that. It, it offers assistance to, to those who are directly employed for the British government, right? The people that it leaves out are those who work for third-party operators. Many, many interpreters work for third-party operators. Those who work for NGOs, those who work for British civil society projects around teaching or construction or anything else, those people are completely excluded from that program. There's a little bit of ministerial wriggle room there, but at the moment, everything depends on that ministerial wriggle room. So suddenly, you know, someone mentions the British Council, they start allowing a few people from the British Council, but not fucking all of them. Many people from the British Council have been rejected. So it's a slice of the people that helped us. And those people, when they fucking helped us, the promise them was that we will keep you safe from the reprisals that you will get as, as a repercussion of this. And that is a promise that we have singularly failed to deliver. And that's not, that's before you even got onto LGBTQ refugees who, of course, are not have right. any any room to live under the Taliban. Or human rights activists or secularists or free thinkers or women or anyone that doesn't fit their demented fascistic assessment of how society should operate. Naomi, we all remember how the 2015 refugee crisis helped Farage and co and kind of fed the sort of dark energies of Brexit. 51% to 29 say in a poll today that we're not doing enough to help interpreters and other people who worked with Western forces. But is that the political calculation still here, that they are, the Tories are scared of a refugee crisis that can be used uh, against them to say they're too soft? Yeah, I mean, I think what we've got to remember is that we've got this awful first-past-the-post voting system and you don't need 51% to get a majority, 51% of the public obviously thinking we should be doing more to help these people get to, to sanctuary. It was only 43% of the people that gifted them an 80-seat majority in 2019. I think they probably have miscalculated this one, though. So, yes, they're pandering to their core vote and from my own you know, scan of what, is being said on social media, there have been some truly horrendous reactions from the Farage East elements of society saying, you know, oh God, this is going to be a disaster. Everyone's going to claim to be an Afghan if they try and get here. And you know, it, it, it is disgusting. But I think uh, it's a smaller number than I would have anticipated. And I think the Conservatives have probably called this one wrong. I think that the great British public on average are bloody sympathetic to what's going on at the moment. I think we should be doing more. And before this happened, aid to Afghanistan was cut by 70% for the coming year. There are calls to reinstate it. But how does aid work now that the Taliban are in charge? Would you just be sending money to them and going, don't use it for anything bad? Well, up until now, yes, a lot of the funding uh, that we'd been sending to Afghanistan had gone through kind of quasi-governmental organisations. And now we're being told that it would only be funneled through development agencies like the Red Cross, 
let's remember British bilateral uh, funding to the country fell from 292 million in 2019 to 167 million last year. Before the resurgence, it was due to fall as low as 37.5 million. As Leila Moran MP has said, Raab and his heartless government cut to funding to, to cut aid funding to the bone, and now all of this is just basically putting a sticking plaster over their failures. I'm glad to see that there's been more of a commitment today, and I think, uh, uh, am I right? It's 10 million extra in in aid that they've said they'll give. Uh, Afghan agencies that are staying there um, in terms of aid, which is, you know, necessary but wholly insufficient, let's face it. So, but it would be going to these it agencies. Would be going, it would be going. Yeah, that, that, Rob has repeatedly said it will only right. go to those agencies. Nina, the collapse looks bad for Biden, obviously, but Trump wanted to withdraw even earlier, uh, back in May. The American public for some time has been overwhelmingly in favour. Tom Nichols in The Atlantic wrote a piece called Afghanistan is Your Fault, The American Public Now Has What It Wanted. Is that fair? I don't think that's necessarily a fair characterization because there are two separate issues at hand here. And this is one that, you know, Biden was trying to obfuscate in his press conference as well. The first is the question of whether or not U.S. forces and allied forces should be withdrawing from Afghanistan. And this is a war that's lasted 20 years, a large part of the U.S. public has lost the thread of what it is exactly that the U.S. is even doing in Afghanistan. And this is combined, of course, with a growing public sentiment that the United States should not be involved in foreign interventions in places like Afghanistan. Um, and this is felt, of course, not only amongst the U.S. electorate, but also amongst local populations in places like Afghanistan or Iraq. So the argument that the United States should withdraw from Afghanistan is not controversial necessarily as a foreign policy question. The second question at hand is that of how the withdrawal should be managed. And no one, hmm. not least the U.S. president, anticipated to the, the extent to which and the speed at which the Afghani government would collapse. And it was only a few weeks ago that Biden was saying that a, the Taliban taking over was not an inevitability. I mean, if he had listened to some experts on Afghanistan and within his own intelligence agencies, perhaps the assessment would have been different. So, of course, now if you poll the U.S. public, you'll find that the Biden administration has actually been successful in bridging the partisan divide. You know, astonishing. Everyone seems to be united both Republicans and Democrats, left or right, that the withdrawal has been an epic catastrophe. And what else can you say about it when you see the images of the helicopters flying off the rooftop of the U.S. embassy or the American military dogs being evacuated out while desperate Afghanis are clinging to military aircraft um, at the airport? So anyone, I think, with a heart can't look at those pictures and uh, feel that the United States and the Allies have abandoned those who faithfully kind of worked with them for the last 20 years and feel, you know, that this is the wrong thing to do. Like you say, nobody really, well, not nobody, like some experts, but broadly speaking, it was not expected that the, the, the government would fall so quickly. Um, there's some interesting polling. Nine days ago, UK voters were 44 to 26% in favour of the withdrawal. Now it's happened, they're 50 to 27 against. Um, and uh, polling by the Asia Foundation over the last couple of years found 53% of Afghans thought the army could cope without foreign assistance. So... People broadly did not expect this to happen. But one thing I wonder, the speed of the Taliban's victory has been shocking. But, I mean, is a peaceful transition preferable to the alternative, which would be a long civil war, which by the looks of it, the Taliban would have ended up winning? I disagree with the premise of that question, because I don't think this is a peaceful transition, right? Make no mistake, these are fundamentalist zealots. I don't think this is the new and better version of the Taliban. Everybody who does not agree with their interpretation of the Muslim emirate as governed by Sharia law is uh, at risk of losing their lives, uh, horrible, cruel deaths and their livelihoods, their futures. So if by peaceful transition, we mean not a single shot has been fired with the Taliban entering Kabul, and the fact that global powerhouses such as Moscow, 
and Beijing are already lending legitimacy to the regime by uh, signaling that they're open to have uh, diplomatic relations with them. I think, well, that just makes it even more depressing. So I, I fundamentally disagree with the premise that this is somehow a peaceful transition because I think what we're going to see happening next is is not that this is a reformed, um, humane Taliban taking power in Afghanistan. I mean peaceful in respect to that it is not a civil, there is not a long civil war, which is obviously something that we've seen in, in say, Syria. Not that it is a good, <laughs> groovy... <laughs> I saw Peter Oborn suggesting that actually they seem quite restrained and the only chaos was at the airport. And it was like, well, the chaos is at the airport because of all the people risking their lives to get away from these, this new restrained Taliban. So I only mean as opposed, as opposed to a war. I'm wondering what, what else could have happened here. Well, it's so complicated, right? I mean, uh, trying to play the kind of game of 3D chess as to how this could have turned out differently or could there have been a move to a kind of democratic civil society in Afghanistan? I think the one thing that we can all agree is that the notion that we had when we went in 20 years ago, that it would be easy to do nation building and development work in Afghanistan and somehow the Taliban would be eliminated was very naive. They fought for the last two decades, uh, the classic guerrilla warfare, and now they're back. So I, I don't know the answer. I, I don't think this is a good outcome. And I don't know if there would have been an alternative that would have been better. I think all I can say, given the situation now, is that we have an obligation, as Ian Naomi already pointed out, to do what we can to evacuate Afghanis out now um, without letting you know the pretty Patels of this world stop that from happening. And looking more broadly, the UK really had no say in this. Uh, Biden made it very clear this was about American interests. Tom Tugendhat wrote in The Times that we need to stop following the US. And a cabinet insider told Alex Wickham at Politico that Biden is a lot more like Trump than he'd want to admit. And we're a lot more like the Europeans than we'd like to admit. Does this mean a long term change to the UK, US, EU relationship. Well, Britain had very little to say about the timing or the tactics of this withdrawal. And it suffered the second most casualties in the Afghan war after the United States. So Biden has humiliated uh, the UK and also many EU politicians were actually against the kind of rapid withdrawal plan and the fact that this happened so quickly and has ended up in the way that it's playing out now has shown kind of how impotent they are in terms of foreign policy. I think it just underscores a long running trend in global geopolitics. And that is a hard reality for both Britain and the EU countries to accept because, like I said, it leaves them feeling vulnerable and impotent. And that is that the US-backed security guarantee for the international rules-based order that emerged after the Second World War is no longer to be taken for granted, and it is no longer the job, the kind of dominant geopolitical force. And it is not only Trump, as you say, Biden is following down that path as well. And of course, it even started under President Obama, famously with the annexation of Crimea and invasion of eastern Ukraine and his failure to sanction the Assad regime when Assad crossed the red line of using chemical weapons against his own own people. So I think the new world order is one in which America and the Western allies, you know, it's not that they have no clout, they are still important, but it is definitely one in which they are no longer necessarily the dominant voices at the table. And I think the entire geopolitical chess around Afghanistan, especially with regard to Iran, Russia and China, is very depressing. Ian, obviously there's been a lot of told-you-sos. I know that we both opposed the invasion of Iraq at the time, um, but I was fairly neutral on Afghanistan because it felt like, I mean, partly because it happened within like three weeks. So I didn't have quite so long to think about it, but it felt almost like an inevitable response to 9-11 because the Taliban were sheltering Osama bin Laden. And I kind of felt like, well, this is this is going to happen. This is sort of bound to happen. What was uh, righteous young Ian's position on Afghanistan? He was uh, he was indeed very righteous and angry. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
and, and oppose uh, the intervention. I've always opposed it. Um, I always just sort of thought it just had that emotion. It's basically, as you just alluded to, it just had that emotional ring to it. It just, even though it was, oh, we're going to close down Al-Qaeda, of course, no one was really talking about nation building at that point. Because mm. we'll close down Al-Qaeda. And, bro. and just sort of think, I don't think you really know what you're doing right now. It's, it had a theatrical element to it that I didn't think was necessary and that suggested that they didn't know what they were doing for the long term. So I could... You know, I could feel vindicated in that way, but I don't feel that at all. I felt like most of the last week, I just felt like I was just being proved wrong because I was really being presented with the reality of what was accomplished there, um, which is a lot of women being able to do things that they were otherwise unable to do, whether that's just leave the house or whether it's go to school or whether it's teach or there's be a politician. So I don't I it presented me with the reality of what happens when there's Western intervention in deeply reactionary repressive states. I can't feel now like there's any way to go with that feeling because we don't have the moral capacity anymore to see that kind of shit through. We just won't do it. You know, there are, there are I mean, in terms of what we could have done here, not much was being asked of us. Our troops are already mostly gone. What was being asked was maintain air power and some contracting capacity for the Afghan army. That's how the Afghan army functioned. That's how it was told to function from the very beginning. It was told to rely on air power contraction. And then we just took that shit away. You look at the US, the US is still in South Korea. You know, how many decades ago was that? That's the kind of degree of commitment, certainly 70 years ago. That's the degree of commitment you need if you are serious about this business. And we're clearly not serious about this business. And I think that realization is as hurtful as the things that are now going to happen in Afghanistan because of our cowardice and our inability to cling to our values. Because they said, I mean, many people have been saying that the whole thing was a waste of time, you know, the, the Taliban are back. But like you said, as, as well as what it meant for women, in much of the country, there was higher literacy, higher life expectancy, 10 times more children in school, child mortality halved. Bin Laden, you know, was removed and eventually killed. How do we define waste like i can understand i suppose there's the american and and uk geopolitical position where you can say well yes that probably was a waste i don't think a lot of afghans would say that those 20 years were a waste i think probably made an enormous difference to them so how can you even assess you know was it worth it what was achieved would it have been better if we'd never done I don't know how to answer that question. It does feel like a waste to me because now you piss it away. You know, what is the point of this stuff unless you protect the people who took advantage of it? Remember, if that situation hadn't pertained, you would have had, you know, women who were more circumspect, who wouldn't have gone to become a judge because they'd have known what would fucking happen to them. So on that basis, they put themselves in harm's way because they believed in our promises. So... Waste doesn't feel like the right word because it does sort of seem to dispel, you know, to dismiss the things that were done. And yet when you do that and you follow it up by just throwing these people to the wolves, I mean, it's impossible to focus on that which was achieved, which is currently in the status of about to be wiped out. Is there not perhaps an idea that a more pragmatic, not a more moderate or reasonable or kinder Taliban, but a more pragmatic Taliban would look at some of those achievements regarding life expectancy, child mortality, even electricity, you know, bringing that to more people, that some of the stuff will be retained, obviously not the stuff relating to civil liberties. I don't believe that any of that will be retained. I think they're theocratic, totalitarian, fascist scum is what they are. And we know what they want for the world. We know the worldview Mm. that they have. You know, it is not just religious, but it is ideological. And I know who the targets of those people are, who they always are. Throughout history, it doesn't even have to be Taliban. We know who they are. We know what these guys are going to do. You know, I don't, I I have, I personally have no hope at all for what will come next. Well, there we go. I tried uh, some optimistic questions and uh, everybody just smacked them down. Um, Not going to be the most cheerful episode we've ever done. Naomi, finally, we all know how Iraq has shaped UK politics. It's still sort of talked about all the time, especially when when Tony Blair says anything. Do you think our 20 years in Afghanistan has had any serious impact at home? Is it just subsumed into the Iraq effect? Because this was not an illegal war. No. This is actually, the circumstances are quite different. The duration of the war... The, the motivation, the, the the kind of international backing for it. But has it had any kind of 
effect on politics separate from Iraq? I don't think, I mean, so I think the, the question of the effect on politics is different to the effect on the public. I think the public are much more likely to conflate mm. Iraq, Afghanistan, hence why the, the polling before the Taliban took control was much more favourable to withdrawal and, uh, you know, much more supportive of it. Although I say that depressingly in the States, it's still pretty high for withdrawal. I mean, that's probably why Biden's done what he's done. Within the political classes, it's come at a time when we've had a degradation in the quality of politician. Um, so it's kind of hard to disentangle what politicians 20 years ago who were broadly of a higher calibre would have felt now about Western interventionism and, and you know, liberal interventionism. Did, 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 what was the, the Lib Dem? Because the Lib Dem is obviously very under Charles Kennedy, fierce opponents of the Iraq war. What was their position on Afghanistan? I, I, I'm now, we're really going back and I was a very, very new member of the Democrats <laughs> as a very, very young student. Um, I think it was broadly in favour. Obviously, Paddy Ashdown had been a key figure in uh, the Balkans and so the party itself had quite a committed view to liberal interventionism at that time. Uh, and in fact, you know, if we're being very, very fair, um, and as much as I am a staunch defender of Charles Kennedy, he took some convincing at the start, I'm told, to come out against the Iraq war. Um, so the, the, the prevailing narrative within the party was, was generally pro-interventionism. Moving on, Plymouth is recovering from a mass shooting that left six people dead, including the gunman. The worst such event in the UK since Cumbria in 2010. The perpetrator had his shotgunner licence taken away last December, apparently after attacking two teenagers and screaming, I fucking hate women. But both licence and gun were handed back last month. His online activity shows connections to the violently misogynist incel or involuntary celibate community. The police initially said that this was not a terrorist incident, but there is talk of reclassifying it as one. Naomi, you spoke to Laura Bates, the author of Men Who Hate Women, for the Bunker Daily, and she insisted that these events do need to be officially referred to as terrorism and treated as such. Is that how you would define what happened in Plymouth? Yes, uh, for no other reason than it very much falls under the definition of terrorism. And I think labelling these attacks as terrorism would send a desperately needed message that violence against women needs to be taken much more seriously. Also, it would enable more resources to be applied to tackling the problem, whether that's counterterrorism expertise, social media regulation, how teachers get trained and resourced to spot this in schools and intervene early, and just helping to like recognise the threat from this particular form of radicalisation. And I think another reason why it needs to be talked about as the terrorism that it is, is that defining male supremacy and misogynistic extremism as forms of terrorism would enable us to recognise and research the enormous overlap between all of these ideologies and other forms of ideologies such as white supremacy and neo-Nazism. What is the incel ideology? If terrorism requires an idea, a sort of shared ideology, what what do incels want and believe? Well, they believe that they are the only ones who are capable of pro-social values and intelligent enough, i.e. have high enough IQ to see the truth about the social world. So it, it's an incredibly uh, warped view, but it's the one they have. Um, and a study determined that incels follow a pattern that is pretty typical of other extremist groups so they ascribe highly negative values to women of course um but to uh, you know other out groups as they would see mm. it and then positive values to in groups always with the usual caveat that despite seeing themselves as psychologically superior to other men and especially women they also view themselves very very negatively in terms of their physical appearance and do we know what the police and Home Office are doing about them relative to far-right and Islamist groups? Well, it's a bit confusing um, at the moment and there's sort of slightly differing voices coming out of government on it. So Jonathan Hall, who is the independent Home Office advisor on terrorism, um, this week said that there was no need to change the definition of terrorism in the wake of what happened in Plymouth because the current description of violence used to advance an ideological cause is sufficient. Um, he told the BBC Radio 4 programme that um, an it was an isolated incident and crossing that threshold would probably not be treated as such. 
because it might not make sense to divert resources to counter it, i.e. there just aren't enough women being killed by incels yet in order for it to to be triggered into a, a, a kind of more formal counter-terrorism response from government. But but Neil Basu, who's Britain's most senior counter-terrorism officer, warned MPs a year ago that young people were being groomed for online terrorism, including incels, uh, alongside the far-right and Islamist extremism. So it's not that clear. One thing that I would say is that, and, and if people want to go back and listen to the Laura Bates podcast that we did, please do, because she's very good at outlining this manosphere so there are different groups within it. You've got incels, you've got things uh, called MRAs, men's rights activists, and then mugtows, which is men going their own way. And there's also things like, you know, the catfishers and the pickup artists and things like this. But it's the incels that are the most violent of the group. And, and they're the ones that abide by this belief that women use their sexual power to dominate men socially. Uh, and for it, they want revenge. Ian, is one problem that this is a sprawling, decentralised movement, you know, not an official group? Because perhaps we grew up with this old distinction between, say, the IRA, Al-Qaeda and these dysfunctional lone wolves. And obviously, if you have enough lone wolves and they're all talking to each other on the Internet, then they're not lone wolves anymore. Yeah, it's not organisational. It's sort of psychological and emotional, isn't the thing that's taking place here. It's a sort of sense of entitlement i think it's actually different to lots of the other things you see but it's an entitlement around sex that some men have this is a quality that you i I don't you have never seen in women you know what i mean there's no comparable group that you could imagine where women would think that way about sex Mm. but it does seem to exist with these men and i can't in terms of how do you tackle that kind of thing and then you have to start having conversations about how we talk about sex in society and that's in schools and with parents. And those people fucking hate having those conversations, right? Like the, the reality is there needs to be the sex ed should be happening in school in a far more impressive way and a far younger and in a far more mature way. The other way is, and I'm slightly uncomfortable talking about this, is the way that we talk about pornography. And I'm uncomfortable about it because I've spent most of my life, you know, pushing for free speech and, and sort of with movies saying, well, look, just because a movie shows violence doesn't make people violent. Blah, blah. Mm. Now, look, there is a lot of fucking porn out there on the internet that is almost never discussed in normal society, right? It's as if it's a shadow world that exists somewhere else, but it is being seen by tens and tens of millions of people. Now, their experience of women very often on screen and very and from their own sort of statements, you get the sense that they don't know any other women, you know, outside mm-hmm. of what's on screen is entirely in what can be very aggressive pornography. Now, There's nothing wrong with porn, but there does need to be an understanding, I think, from quite a young age, from teenagers, and it's probably going to have to come from parents, if not teachers, to say, what you are seeing here is fantasy. This is a fantasy thing. And that is separate to the way that sexual activity goes on in real life or can go on in real life. But we can't start having those conversations until we're actually prepared to do them without embarrassment and that coy British, oh, tee-hee-hee, we can't all be talking about sex, can we? That the conversation has to happen. This is None of the shit I'm saying is sufficient to deal with this kind of problem, but it, I think it is necessary. So you, I mean, you're talking, I suppose, about the prevention of kind of new people being radicalised. You spoke to Charles Arthur on the podcast recently about how Gamergate inspired this huge wave of online misogyny. I mean, so many terrible things uh, can be traced back to, to Gamergate. Mm-hmm. How do you begin to de-radicalise people who have already gone down that path? I don't know. I actually, I actually have no idea how you really get hold of those people. I, I presume that sort of strong male role models has some effect. I mean, you can't take away, you know, the internet from people. You can't stop them from going on Reddit. I mean, these are people before they carry out an attack or anything like that. Trying to put out activity that challenges that. I mean, you would hope that when people talk about sexual relationships between men and women, there is a kind of narrative that is speaking to men and is not ashamed to be speaking to men that is never less about the fact that women are actual human beings, not things to be tricked into having sex with you or who demonstrate your sort of social Darwinist feebleness by virtue of not wanting to have sex with you. But I, I don't know. I, I think a lot of it has got to do with mental health intervention and if this definition of incel is that not only, you know, that they are sort of psychologically superior to women, but they are they feel very physically inferior to other men then that's the bit we've got to tackle it's that inferiority complex and how do we help younger men with their self-esteem and their self-image and all the rest of it and and how do we identify ones that are suffering Mm. and and therefore likely to fall into these traps that validate them and make them feel better but it's such a potent area for radicalization isn't it because when i was a when i was a teenager kind of little low self-esteem not so great with girls at some at one point 
I don't um, believe it. Don't no, I can't well, imagine. Well, I mean, it's hard, Rob. <laughs> it's, it's, it's hard now when you see what I blossomed into. <laughs> but, um, you know, but at, the t- at that time, it was just, it was a very kind of passive insecurity. There was no language out there. There were no sort of communities out there that could turn that feeling into something violent, into a sense of entitlement. I never had, I never had that sort of sense of entitlement. What you realise was that so many teenage boys feel like that, yeah. And now there's a whole language and an ideology which turns that into something really toxic. Isn't it like the message that we've always had from sort of nationalists and fascists, which is, you know, when you go to people who are insecure, whether it's in their material conditions or in their yeah. social standing, and you say, well, you do have something to be proud of. You know, you have your race, you have your country, and you have your sex. This mm. is the thing that they can't take from you. That there is something to find strength in. And that, in a way, I mean, this feels very new and very unusual, but in a way it corresponds to patterns that we've seen for over 100 but years. But fascism. Yeah, exactly. Going to these kind yeah. of alienated, insecure individuals. And I don't know if, if, if Nina has experienced this, but, I mean, as a teenager, I remember rejecting a boy who, you know, made an advance and him getting angry, like really quite angry about it, and then telling other boys bad things about me because if he couldn't you know mm-hmm. snog me behind the cinema no one was allowed to kind of thing so that that anger amongst some teenage boys and that the the pain of rejection and the fact that they are not conditioned or taught how to deal with that at a young enough age and how to cope with it and you know don't worry not everyone's for you there'll be other people mm-hmm. plenty more fish mm-hmm. in the sea kind of stuff um and and uh, you know i just wonder if the internet had existed then <laughs> what might have happened to some of those blokes mm. um Nina, a lot of the Manosphere communities originated on Reddit. Many of those communities have since been shut down. Where is their organising happening now? Is it all on more sort of clandestine networks? I think there are loads of places online where you can go if you want to find this kind of community. I mean, more generally, as some of the mainstream platforms, whether it's YouTube or Twitter or Reddit or Facebook, have started cleaning up their act in terms of some of these violent, well, terrorist communities, is that what we've been seeing is the splintering of the internet, right? Where people just move off Mm. and move into alternative places, whether that's 4chan, whether that's on encrypted messaging apps like Telegram. And I think that is just generally going to be a feature of the internet going forward as some of the public most public social media domains start to become increasingly policed or moderated for good reasons, there is simply not going to be a way to shut down all the alternative spin-off communities that will emerge underground for people to discuss these kind of ideas. Because, I mean, obviously, the, the obvious thing to call for is for Facebook and YouTube to kind of crack down on, I suppose, what you call incel light content, which has the misogyny, but not the... Uh, not the explicit violence. They shouldn't be let off the hook here. They should be doing more. I mean, the fact that, you know, there there's still content on YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, you name it, on the main social media platforms where it's literally, you know, incitement of, of genocide or <laughs> violence. That content has not been taken down, um, you know, you can imagine that in, in the pecking order of content moderation, incel light content is coming way lower than some of this more, you know, outright violent, aggressive content, which they still refuse to take down. So whilst it is true that there is a move to other kind of platforms, that does not mean that the main platforms should be absolved of their responsibility to clean up their act. Um, And Laura Bates wrote a Guardian article the other day which said mainstream media speculation about whether Me Too is a witch hunt and headlines about henpecked husbands who snap and kill their partners help to legitimise even more extreme beliefs. Do you agree that the obsession with um, online activity, message boards, anonymous posts, you know, sort of hidden networks and so on means that the, the mainstream media gets off lightly Well, I think we can all agree that those kind of articles in the mainstream media are ridiculous and should be, you know, called out for what they are. If if there really are articles in the mainstream media that, you know, the the husband just snapped because his wife was just, you know, she deserved it. She had it coming to her. I mean, that's outrageous that articles like that can still be published in the mainstream media. In a broader sense about some of these issues, though, and this is going back to what both Naomi and Ian 
we're speaking about, I think it's really important to have a kind of positive male narrative in terms of what it means to be a strong man, what it means to be a modern man, um, whilst kind of trying to navigate this world of uh, sex and women and all these issues that have been raised. I mean, it's too big to discuss here, but what pornography does to the minds of young men, all of these issues, I think, are really, really relevant because I don't think that this, whilst this is one extreme manifestation, this kind of incel terror group, I think there is a much broader kind of malaise perhaps in how young men feel they should navigate modern society, sex, and women today. Ian, I have a, 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 a troubling thought here, is that as somebody who is no fan of Jordan Peterson uh, and still gets um, messages uh, complaining about an article I wrote three years ago <laughs> from his fans, but what some of them say is they're quite indignant and they and they were morally indignant and they go, he really helped me and he helped me to be a sort of a better man. And I think from a left-wing point of view, I mean, do you think Peterson is part of the problem? He's in the sort of spectrum of the, of the manosphere. But if we're talking about de-radicalization and stuff, do you actually think that those people who by whatever my standards seem a bit... Are perhaps the key because he is saying he's got very big on personal responsibility. He's got old fashioned sort of conservative in some ways and very big on like not blaming others and not having the sort of sense of entitlement. So actually the people that might offer what Nina is saying, which is a more positive masculinity, might be people that too many people on the left, many women might seem, you know, might seem unsavory themselves, but they're a better messenger than a groovy liberal. Groovy liberal. I mean, obviously, groovy, the most dad centrist dad thing you've groovy, ever said. Groovy liberals are always <laughs> the worst messengers. But, but you know what? You know what I mean. That actually, yeah, yeah. That that may be the solution. Part of the solution. I, I haven't read enough of his stuff to be able to say. I haven't read any of his stuff. I've just seen a few interviews and thought I don't really like the sound of this. This isn't for me. He just mm. said you've got to make the bed every morning, which, as a life rule, I just think I just can't get behind that. <laughs> um, so like, I, I, I can't speak like authoritatively enough on, on what he's doing. It's going to be definitely true that the kind of people who could speak to many of these communities are going to naturally be people that we do not like the sound of. And if that's mm. the approach he's talking about personal responsibility, that obviously seems much, much more superior than the kind of messaging that you usually get there. However, my instinct, and probably this is more representative of what I wish to be true, maybe than what actually is true but my instinct is that the key lies in one of the things that Naomi just said of that phrase um, I'm not for everyone and I just think when you're young and you suffer rejection it's quite easy to take it as this sort of systematic almost oppression like this full Mm. spectrum commentary Mm. on everything that there is that's of value to you and when you see phrases and I, I remember there was a, a guy that did a bunch of blogs about dating um, and he kept on saying whenever he was rejected, he just wrote, oh, that, that's OK. I'm not for everyone. And that kind of attitude of like, you know, this is not an affront to everything that you are. This is just the the jumble, the game of pe- people finding ones where they both happen to like each other at the same time. That much more accepting and generous appraisal rather than the the brute social Darwinist appraisal of society that is typically the currency in the way that this discussed in these circles seems to me to be the solution. I mean, even as very, very young children, uh, fairy tales teach girls to kiss a lot of frogs before you find your prince. Mm-hmm. And there isn't the equivalent in, <laughs> in fairy tale stories mm-hmm. for men. No, in boys. fact, more than that, in a way... Most of the narratives that you see in films, even now, but especially, you know, in the 80s, was always the resistant woman, right? You know, and at first she's never interested in the hero, mm. but the sort of medicine is just keep on trying. <laughs> you know, and eventually she will, she was a cub. Although technically in The Princess and the Frog, I don't, I think she only kisses one frog. <laughs> <laughs> I know the figure of speech, but I do think that that is, is inaccurate. She's not, doesn't spend the whole time just kissing random frogs, <laughs> hoping one of them's going to turn into a prince. Now it's time for Overrated Underrated, where each week one of us sorts the wheat from the chaff in the world of politics. Nina Schick, what's your choice this week? Okay, so for Overrated, without sounding like an old crank, like, oh, in my day we were caned and we sat for exams for 10 days without sleeping. (laughs) I think the most overrated idea is letting teachers give pupils their grades without exams. Uh, which, <gasps> no, which is undeniable. Why, grad grind? <laughs> okay, and the reason why, hear me out. So, forty something percent of students getting A or A stars, but 
It's a problem when you start digging into the data because you see that it's leading to a huge gap between students at private schools and uh, those at state schools. So I think it was 70% of kids at private schools got A or A stars compared to 42% at, 42% at state academies, 39% at comprehensives, and 35% at sixth forms. So it's almost like the teachers who were teaching at very expensive private schools felt a little bit of pressure to grade their students a little bit higher. I don't think they have any incentive whatsoever <laughs> to do that. I think that's very cynical. <laughs> Is that what they said? Yeah. They were just going with their heart. Of course. Uh, how are your exam days? <laughs> Why is that? I quite liked uh, I quite like doing exams. <laughs> well, I, I hate exams. exams. Uh, okay, so, and for the most underrated, so underrated. Um, I'm going to go with kind of the top story today, um, the, the news that's kind of rocking uh, the world of geopolitics. And I'm going to say the most underrated is our Tory prime minister who never was. Rory Stewart, he's, of course, been back in the news, uh, given what's unfolding in Afghanistan and given his own kind of personal connections and charities in the country. He's uh, been very vocal about condemning what he sees as a Western betrayal and catastrophic failure, especially with regards to our moral obligation to the Afghanis who were so loyal to U.S. and allied forces there for so many years. Um, I really, by the way, recommend his book. He wrote it before he became an MP. It's called um, The Places in Between. And it's a travel log where he basically went on a solo walk around northwestern Afghanistan. And uh, I know Naomi made mention earlier in the podcast about the kind of caliber of the politicians who are in office today. But he, good old Rory, seems to have been cut from a different cloth. So... I wish he had been prime minister. Perhaps we would be evacuating um, more Afghanis out of Kabul now than what's what's unfolding today. That's great. We're going to get more centrist dad allegations for our uh, for our affection for Rory. Now it's time for but your emails. This week, Sean Kay says Nando's are temporarily closing some of their outlets because they can't get enough chicken. What shop or restaurant chain would have to close for the panel to go to post-Brexit panic stations? <laughs> what could you not live without and do you have a plan B? I think our answers are going to be very different. <laughs> what about, um, Naomi, Vegan Hut? <laughs> well, first of all, do you remember when KFC ran out of chicken and people mm. were calling 999? Mm -hmm. like that, that has happened in the last few years. I mean, shit, they thought they had problems then. <laughs> uh, I mean, you know, and then, yeah. Anyway, um, uh, I mean, hands off my Greg's vegan roll, right? You know, it's cheap, it's convenient, it's warm, it's filling, it's got protein. <laughs> yeah, that's probably my equivalent of a, of a Nando. It's amazingly cheap. I bought a vegan sausage roll in a cafe recently, in a fancy cafe, and it was four pounds. You get four Greg's ones for that. Yeah. <laughs> and they brought out a new vegan range. They've got a new uh, a new roll. It's not a sausage roll, but it's I don't know. It's kind of like bean and cheese, and they've got a couple of other bake ones because they had the vegan steak bake as well. I haven't, I haven't tried them yet. The but, steak uh, bake is not good. No, a bit dog foody, isn't it? It's a bit spooky. Okay, um, Ian. So it is going to be either McDonald's or KFC. Um, and it sort of depends on the time of day. So like, if I'm drunk and going home, I have to have a KFC so that I feel okay the next morning. And if I wake up with a hangover, I need to have a McDonald's breakfast. I'm not interested in having a KFC at any time before 10 o'clock at night. And I'm not interested in having a McDonald's any time after 10 a.m. when they stop serving the breakfast. <laughs> but for those periods when I'm drunk, it's very, very, very important indeed that they exist. So I will, I will fight at the fucking barricades for those guys. Nina's going to so shame us for the Nina lovely, seems, healthy response. Nina seems too classy for that. Yeah, so I, don't, I can't see her in either. <laughs> I don't even know how to answer this question, Sean. Uh, uh, is this like a uniquely... British thing that I haven't quite 
understood yet. Um, Miss Present Manger? There it is. There it is. I mean, it wasn't as classy as I was expecting, but it was definitely quite a bit above Greg's or McDonald's. Uh, I don't really have. The thing is, it's a weird time to ask it in a sense because we during lockdown, loads of places were closed, and turned mm. out I was fine. Mm-hmm. Um, but then I did get an espresso machine, mm. and so I functioned on that. And so I suppose if I couldn't like, I just couldn't get like if they ran out of an espresso pods. I mean, no, it is a very ordinary person in the street kind of opinion. Oh, yeah. Yeah. There's absolutely nothing. They, they, they talk of nothing that. else in the red wall <laughs> than, uh, than the latest Nespresso. Have you tried the hazelnut? Um, but no, it's, it's a sort of a weird one because, you know, I've just gone through a period where it turns out that I can kind of live without, like, any of these things. Oh, well, you see, I would have come to that conclusion, except that in the first lockdown, McDonald's weren't doing deliveries. So every time I had a hangover, I was completely fucked. I just couldn't recover from it because there was no McDonald's breakfast. How much extra do you have to pay to get it delivered? Oh, quite a bit more, but it's worth it because that way I can function. <laughs> and anyway, if you keep I, on it, adding... I mean, like, we need to think about this breakfast as well. Like, presumably, we're not talking like the pancake stack thing. We're talking... No, no, of course not. Hash You're browns, talking... McMuffins. The sausage, the double sausage. Right. Uh, was... burger, yeah. Um, and, but then, of course, you, you need to add, you need to get an additional hash brown to put in the, in the breakfast mm-hmm, sandwich. Mm-hmm. And you need to get an additional, like, it's, the, the perfect McDonald's breakfast when, so it's, it's just below the point where it would dislocate your jaw if you try to eat it. And what about the, the KFC? Because they do a hash brown in a burger as well. Zinger they? Tower. Zinger, yeah. You'll notice that in all of these examples, it's that I have to find a way of putting potatoes inside, inside of the, that's, it's absolutely, mm. uh, it's of essential importance. I was watching ads because now TV basically only has one ad and it's for McDonald's delivery. Hmm. So you get it a lot. <laughs> Uh, if you like Tiffany's, I think we're alone now. You're in luck. Um, but I was just thinking, who the hell would order McDonald's delivery? I can understand, like, walking into a restaurant for convenience, but who the hell would, would like it that much? Now you know. And now I know. Yeah, it's me. I've been, keeping them, I've been keeping them going pretty much single-handedly for the last year. I think we're alone now. <laughs> uh, and that's the show. Thank you to Ian. Oh, thank you. Nina. Thanks for having me. And Naomi. Thanks very much. This week on The Extra Bit, we discuss our mixed feelings about problematic faves. You'll hear a quick preview after our theme song, Demon is a Monster by Corner Shop, and a thanks to our latest backers. Hello, and thanks from me to Mark Bevan, Adam O'Farrell, Alex Buxton, Lydia Molinar, Emily Thomas and Eugene Cooney. And a big thank you from me uh, to Hannah Rice, Tim Rickard, Jurd, or JRD, one of the two, uh, Mr. Bear, Marion Saccharine, Matthew Flint, and Eliski. Hello from me and thank you to Mo Abdul, Catherine McSharry, Robert Parker, Tom M, Nick Arundale, Robert Rudnicki, and Daniel Gibbons. And finally, thanks very much from me to Kate Ross, Alastair McKenzie, Simon Jones, Stephen Montgomery, Harry Gray, Sophia Falkeo, and Paul Evans. Oh God, what now? Was presented by Dorian Linsky with Ian Dunn, Nina Schick, and Naomi Smith. The producer was Andrew Harrison. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Yelna Sofronievich. An audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Our intern was Nat Amos. Art direction by Mark Taylor. Oh God, What Now? is a Podmasters production. Welcome to the Extra Bit, exclusively for Patreon backers. In his first interview since losing his libel suit over claims of domestic abuse, Johnny Depp has complained that he's been blacklisted by Hollywood, his new film Minamata denied distribution in the US. Meanwhile, the rapper Giggs has tweeted that it's time to forgive grime godfather Wiley for his crazed anti-Semitic rant last year, saying the man has got three kids to feed, he got shown what time it is, let's move on now. We'll be talking about what to do with people whose behaviour colours their art, both those who are still alive to potentially make amends and those who are problematically pushing up the daisies. (laughs) Ian, I once interviewed you uh, for a piece about disillusioned Morrissey fans. Yes. Uh, Now, some people vow never to give him another penny, uh, you know, not to see him live, not to buy any new material, but they can still enjoy their old Smiths records. Are you able to split the difference that way or is your enjoyment compromised? It sort of wobbles around. I mean, for a start, like, I would definitely never go see Morrissey live. Do you know what I mean? Like, you would just be like, there's no fucking way I'd be going anywhere near something like that, if only to preserve any memory you had of him when it mattered. 
Um, and then I like to think, well, I just don't want to hear it. And in fact, I think that's what I was telling you in that interview a couple of years ago now. I was just like, I just don't want, I just can't justify this. I don't want to put on. But then stuff happened. Like I watched that film. Do you remember Pride, that film about like the, uh, the miners and, mm-hmm. and, the, and, and, and it was playing in a, in a club in an early scene with sort of a bunch of gay guys and, and whatever. And you remembered what Morrissey music was, you know, and why Morrissey specifically feels like such a betrayal. It's not just like, I like this music and it turns out he's a twat. It's that he always felt like he was on the side of the outsider, you know, and, and the, the minority and the people who, well, you know, the, the people who felt they were quite sort of sensitive and it was a tough world, basically like me when I was 14, you know. And so then when he comes out on the side of like the dominant bullying sort of mm. edl sort of stuff, it just feels like a profound betrayal of what those lyrics meant. And then you go into a space of like, well, do I own the lyrics or does he own it? You know, like, is the, does the music somehow become your like in a kind of Lockean mixing your labor with it you know that you sort of take a form of ownership over it you and i never i never have an i, I don't have a firm opinion but it do you listen changes to um because yeah. some people just go well i'm listening to johnny Marr, and then there's just this guy singing over the top of right, roughly so, johnny Marr. so to be honest i don't put it on i mean i have the advantage that my, my missus is and that was a trailer for the bonus edition of this week's podcast if you'd like a little bit more oh god what now every week without ads and a day early then sign up to back us on patreon for as little as two pounds a month You'll be helping the podcast and we'll be very grateful. And don't forget our new weekly minicast, Oh God, What Else, out every Monday morning. Thanks for listening. See you next week.